Will you turn with me this morning in the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 as we continue on in our series, Praying with Paul. Ephesians chapter 3. Our reading this morning will be verses 14 through 21. Would you stand with me wherever you are now? out of respect for the reading of the Holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 14, for this reason. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that God works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I'll never forget the first time I prayed this prayer. This is a prayer, by the way, that we just read in Ephesians 3.14. And as I said, I'll never forget it because it was during a football team retreat in my junior year of high school. After practice, uh, one of the team building exercises our coach uh, liked us to engage in as a team because he was a Christian was praying for one another. So he assigned us to sit in groups of six and um, pray to the buddy next to us. So I remember sitting there uh, huddled up as uh, groups of six and eyes open and Bibles opened and we sat there and we prayed this prayer for the person next to us only inserting the name of our football buddy next to us as we prayed through these requests. So it's kind of odd to think about it. Well, over 30 years ago, I was taught how to pray with Paul. But here's the thing. I had no idea what I was praying. I can remember at the time, seriously and literally remembering, I have no idea what's being said here. And the reason is because this is a very complicated text. Just to illustrate it for you, uh, I want you to notice in verse 14 that there is an indication that Paul is about to pray, but he doesn't actually begin to pray until verse 16, where you read those words, may he give, and that's not the request yet. There is really one request in verse 16, and then into 17, and then the second request comes in verse 18. So out of all of these verses here, we basically have two requests 
the Apostle Paul. But to make it even a little bit more complicated, I want you to think about the number of qualifications of this single and first prayer request, which we read in verse 16. And again, the single prayer request that we have here in verse 16 is that we would be strengthened in the inner man. But then in verse 16, that is qualified three different ways when we read about that we would be strengthened according to the riches of his glory, with power, through the spirit, in the inner man. And then as you read on into verse 17, one of the things that we need to be aware of is verse 17, at least in its initial portion, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, is simply a restatement of the prayer request of verse 16 to be strengthened in the inner man. In other words, to be strengthened in the inner man is to have Christ to dwell in you. And then again, that um, elaboration or expounding upon the request is qualified yet again here as you come into verse 17 by the phrases through faith and being rooted and grounded in love. So however you tally this up, and there's a, a couple of different ways to do it at least, but on either reckoning, there are five or six qualifications of the single prayer request, be strengthened in the inner man. So I think you can understand why we sat there bewildered about what we were praying. And I'm sure, uh, I suspect this morning, it wasn't just us ignorant high schoolers on a football team. I suspect many of us, when we read this, find it to be challenging because of the complex nature of the unfolding of the thoughts. So what I want to do this morning to assist us to learn how to pray with Paul and to pray not only how Paul prayed, but for what Paul prayed, I'm just going to simply take apart the first request. That's all we can do this morning. And the next time, Lord willing, we'll take up the second request. But all we want to do this morning is take up this first request, which is located in verse 16, to be strengthened in the inner man. And what we want to see is that strengthening in the inner man is unto a purpose. And that great purpose of being strengthened in the inner man is that we may live out our theology. That we may live out our theology. So let's break up our text in three parts. The reason for seeking inward strength, the manner of seeking inward strength, and the prayer for inward strength. So let's start with the reason for seeking inward strength. And all of us can see that Paul wants us to think about reason. Look at verse 14 and the very first words. For this reason. So obviously there's a reason for the prayer because Paul tells you there's a reason. Now, if your Bible's open, I hope it is, should be, look at verse 1. Same chapter, same words. For this reason. Now here's something interesting about this prayer. Paul tried to start praying this prayer 14 verses earlier. But what's interesting about this, it's as if Paul's thoughts jump the train tracks here. Because as you read on in verse 1 and then following in verse 2, it's very clear to us he's not praying. 
Instead, his mind, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been lifted up, and he continues on to expound theology. The specific thing that he expounds is the mystery of Christ, which he's been explaining already, and the church's role in proclaiming that to angels. So it's not till you come back to verse 14 that the thought of the Apostle Paul comes back onto the rails. And we have our request for this reason, and now the prayer unfolds. But that leads us to see this morning, what is the reason that prompts this prayer? We could reach back to verses 2 through 13. We'd guess part of the reason. But it seems to me that the meat of the reason for why Paul prays this prayer is in what precedes. So you'll remember from last time, I hope, that we expounded the first part of Paul's prayer as is recorded back in chapter 1. We said you can see the evidence of Paul praying in verse 17 of chapter 1 where he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, there's the beginning of your prayer, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And we said there, the apostle prayed for the church to be illuminated in the knowledge of God. To be illuminated in the knowledge of God, so that they might know God by knowing his grace. But here's the thing about that. As Paul expounds upon this knowledge, and particularly this great work of grace, which is the power of God at work in us, that the prayer trails off. As you look at verse 20 of chapter 1, what do you notice there? Is the apostle has stopped praying. And he's gone to preaching again. And what he preaches about is Christ and the power of his resurrection and the authority of his rule. So from 120 on, all through chapter 2, what do you have but Paul proclaiming and expounding theology and doctrine? And as we start to think about that, we see what is the thing that Paul seems to be reaching back to which motivates this prayer as he continues it. And I think that we find that entry point into what he's really thinking about in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So what is he thinking about here? But the implications of reconciliation. He has taken this vast thought of, of the Gentiles who were once strangers to the covenants of, of promise, who had no hope without God and without Christ in this world. And he said the wonderful thing that's happened because of the cross of Jesus Christ is that those who were far off have now been brought near to God through Christ and are reconciled. They're reconciled to God. but They're also reconciled together in one body with believing Jews, as you can see, as the thought unfolds in verse 20 through 22. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, 
in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of the Spirit for this reason. See that? For this reason. You see, he's just expounded this vast idea here of the reconciliation that we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ to the Father. And then its implications, which means that all of us from whatever race and background and ethnicity and language and gender and socioeconomic status and whatever we may be, we've all been brought into a body. That's the body of Christ. We're being knit together and built up into a temple, a fit dwelling place for God in Christ. It's that marvelous thought that the apostle immediately pivots away from in terms of expounding to praying about. 31, for this reason. Now he stopped there, but because the same phrase is used in verse 14, we are free to conclude this is precisely what drives the apostle Paul to prayer, theology. His doctrine is what drives him to prayer. And particularly, the thing about his doctrine and theology which drives him to prayer is he's saying to the church by making that connection and drawing it out, he's saying this, you've been taught in what to believe, but you must live it. You've been taught what you must believe, but you must live it. It's one thing for us to say, that it's glorious that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and reconciled to one another and implanted in Christ together and are a part of one body together and are being built up into a temple together and each of us are little living stones a part of that vast growing temple complex. But it's another thing to say, live it. You see, the theology which is ours because of grace is now something that must take shape in our life. And so the reason for the prayer is that we would be knit together in love for one another, that we would serve one another, that we would live out this great theology. And so it reminds me this morning, people of God, that we've only begun our learning by understanding the ABCs of our, of our doctrine. I say that because of whom Paul is praying for. This is the Ephesian church. This is a church that I think we can make a good case for is one of the most doctrinally sound and advanced churches in Christendom of the day. And the reason is because Paul spent two and a half years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus teaching every single day. The evidence that they're so well taught is all of these vast theological terms that he's used in the book of Ephesians already. Election, adoption, predestination, redemption, pardon, inheritance, illumination. The list goes on and on. Th these are terms that it takes all of us uh, uh, weeks and years of intense training to just learn the concepts of. And, and he's throwing them around this letter like it's, it's old news. But, but it's precisely to people who know the rudiments of their theology, who understand the ABCs of their doctrine, 
whom he prays for. By that, it's an indication that just because we know the right words doesn't mean we've understood it yet. Because the understanding of it intellectually is only the beginning point of knowing our doctrine. Calvin says it like this. His prayers are mentioned to excite them to pray in the same manner. For the seed of the word is scattered in vain. Unless the Lord render it fruitful with his blessing. Calvin is saying, no less than Calvin, one, one who seems to be somebody who cares about doctrine a little bit, says it, it's, it's in vain to scatter the seeds of the word and sound doctrine unless the Lord places blessing upon it for us. It's very evident that the way that happens is prayer. You see, people of God, this morning what the apostle would have us learn is not just what it means in technical language and vocabulary what it is to be reconciled to God through Christ and to one another but how do you love your neighbor who's in Christ how do you treat your neighbor who's in Christ are you at peace with them do you care about them do you pray for them do you love them do you serve them do you uphold them? Are you a blessing to them? It's good to understand the basics of the doctrine. But the apostle says to those who know the basics of the doctrine, there's another step to take now. That step is taken with prayer. The reason for his praying, the thing that moves him in his praying, is his theology. But now notice... The manner. They have to be strengthened in the inner man so they can live out this theology. But I want us to note next now the manner of his seeking this inward strength. And let me just see if I can inch forward a bit forward now into verse 14 of chapter 3. Because here is really what I want to spotlight and focus on as we think about the manner of seeking the grace. He says, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. You see, we haven't quite got to the prayer request yet, but he's ramping up to get there. And we can see whom he's addressing. And the very fact that we see whom he's addressing and how he's addressing him, we learn something very critical about how to pray with Paul and to pray as Paul prays. And the first thing he says here. He prays to the Father. He prays to the Father. And as we think about that, we remember this morning that speaks of adoptive grace. It speaks of adoptive grace. And, and, and notice the connection here from 14 into 15. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. This speaks of the blessing of, of adoption, of being brought into the covenant of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And one reason why we would see that is that this family that the Apostle Paul speaks of in heaven and earth, well, it, it's got to be those who've received grace because it says here they've all been named. Something has happened to them. 
The Father has named them. That means something has happened to them. It's passive. God has assigned them a name and a status and a condition. Into this phrase, every family in heaven and earth, we ask ourselves the question, is the Apostle Paul speaking of absolutely every single person under the sun? And the answer is no. Just look back at Ephesians 2.19. Here's where you begin to see this family and what it means to take shape. He says there, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but what? Fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Here's your family now. It's the household of God. And Gentiles, it's the people no longer strangers and aliens, as the apostle Paul says, the family, every family of heaven and earth that is named is this family, the one family, the household of God. And so to address God as father here of every family is to address God as the one who adopts us and brings us into his family by grace. Now, the other reason for focusing on the title father here is because father now is the peculiar means of access to God in prayer. Look back at 2.18. Here the apostle says, For through him, that's Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Look again at verse uh, 12 here, where he says, In whom, that is Christ Jesus our Lord, whom Paul referred to in verse 11, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Now think about that. Every word there matters. The first word access means to be brought into a place of privilege. Access means to be brought into a place of privilege. And the next word here is boldness. And this is the word that was used to describe uh, the great speeches in the um, civic assemblies of the ancient world. It spoke of that capacity and that ability for free citizens to stand up in the midst of democratic assembly and speak with openness and truth and honesty and without hindrance. And then finally we have this word confidence. And it basically means the belief you can't be stopped. All three of those terms work together to describe the privilege of prayer. When Paul's appealing to the Father, he is praying. And by appealing to the Father, he is teaching us about the kind of way we pray. The privilege of ours when we pray. And that is we come to the Father as one whom we can trust. I was thinking about this for our young people and small children. I know your mommy and your daddy are teaching you how to pray. When you sit at the table for dinner, they teach you how to pray. When you sit down for school, they teach you how to pray. When they put you to bed at night, they probably have you get down on your knees and fold your hands and pray. What you learn here about prayer, young people and children, 
is that when you pray to God, you can trust he's going to hear you. And the way that you know that is because he leads you to pray, Father. I know all of you have wonderful fathers here on earth. Your daddy loves you more than anyone. If you're hurt, he'll help you. If you need something, he'll give it to you. If you need protection, he's there for you. That's what Paul was saying to the church. When you think of praying, he says, you think about this. You're going to the Father. He has opened wide the place for you to come. And he says, I want you to come. My arms are open for you to come. Just come boldly. Come with confidence. Come with assurance. Tell him exactly what you need. That's how Paul leads us to pray. Young people, small children, older people, we can all pray this way because of what's true. God is our Father through Jesus Christ. And this thing that He wants us to have is strength. And the way God is pleased for us to ask for that strength is to come to Him with this kind of trust. We're going to talk about why we need that strength some more and the blessing of it. But here's how you pray in such a way that God hears you, Father. And he hears us because we're coming through Jesus, the one who loved us, died for us, gave himself for us, shed his blood for us. So you pray with confidence. That's part of the manner. Here's the other part of how we pray to the Father for our great needs. Fervently. Fervently. I, I want you to look at those words that you see here in verse 14. I bow my knees. I bow my knees. To bow means to bend. To bend means to show or express reverence. And it means Paul is praying. You know, there's a text where we see Paul do this, literally. You can imagine he's doing it as he's praying for the saints right now, but we've seen him do it before, and guess who he did it for before? The Ephesians. He, he um, was at the end of one of his missionary journeys in Acts 20, and, and he sends a letter to the elders of Ephesus, and he says, I... I got to talk to you some more. Can, can you meet me on this little tiny island called Miletus? And so they met there. He, he talked to them for, must have been, we could say hours probably, as he preached to them and he taught them and he encouraged them and he exhorted them and he told them all kinds of things and he warned them about a coming perilous problem in their midst that those who were among them and confessed the name of Christ would show their razor-sharp, wolf-like teeth and begin to devour the flock. But you know what he did at the end of it? We're told that he put his arms around all those brothers and he got down on his knees and he prayed. Fervency. Fervency. John Calvin says this, inward affection is indeed the chiefest thing in prayer 
and external signs such as kneeling have a double use because by this it provokes us to reverence for God. The manner in which we pray matters for our prayer. This is so important for us to hear as we listen to the Apostle Paul say, I'm on my knees. The manner of how we pray matters to how we pray. Fervency. Struck by how the Apostle James puts it. In James 5.16, he says, The effective prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much, or I always remembered it in the old King James, availeth much. In other words, the way that your prayer availeth, or secureth, if you will, or, or lays hold of what you're praying, is how you pray. I, I gotta tell you, sometimes as Reformed people, we need a double dose of hearing that. We need a double dose of hearing that. How we pray, the manner we pray matters. And do you want James' example of uh, the kind of prayer that availeth much is? Well, he appeals to the example of old Elijah in the Old Testament. Remember the prophet Elijah? In verse 17 of James 5, it said he prayed and it didn't rain for three years. How's that for availing much? He intended that to happen by his prayer, by the way. And then the next verse, verse, verse 18, it says he prayed again and it rained. That's availing much, right? But guess what particular image James latches hold of to talk about that effectual, availing, accomplishing prayer was. You go look it up for yourselves, edify yourselves this afternoon. Read uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. What a great chapter of the Old Testament. <laughs> Beautiful, wonderful chapter because of just the way the Lord comes down there and makes his name known. But you know how uh, James prayed, or rather Elijah prayed? It says he crouched down to the earth and put his face between his knees. The image here is of somebody contorted and twisted in a pretzel with his face down. He's praying. With all of his might. The external posture of prayer reinforced the internal affection and desire of his heart. The manner of praying matters. We cry out to God with confidence as our Father. But when we're teaching our children to bow their head and to fold their hands and even to get down on their knees and pray, we are teaching our children something that's critical to prayer. Not just reverence, but fervency. Because that kind of prayer, according to the Word of God, avails much. Because God is pleased to answer as we show him by our manner that our hearts are full of reverence for him. So we're praying with Paul. We're learning how to pray with Paul. 
We've seen the reason for the prayer, which is uh, theology motivates him to pray because the theology has to be lived out. We've seen the manner in which Paul prays. He prays to the Father with confidence. He bows his knees to show reverence and fervency. Now come back into the, our text. Let's see the last thing we want to see here in verse 16. Prayer for inward strength. We've come now to the request itself. Verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Okay, we already told you this is a complex prayer. One petition, six qualifications. What I want to do is take, let's start with the prayer request, and then let's work through the qualifications. And the prayer request here is very straightforward. May he grant you, he's appealing to the Father, and he asks that God would grant, which means it's a sovereign gift, so whatever received is something to be received by grace. And the main thing that he prays for is strength. And that verb there for strengthen is a, is a really, really, really intense word. He's strengthened. And the place of that strengthening is the heart of the person. So what he wants is this strengthening. Let's work through our qualifying phrases now. And the first one is quite interesting. <clears throat> and sometimes it may feel to us like, oh man, Paul just... Keeps one thing upon the other. Is all of it necessary? The answer is yes. According to the riches of his glory. Some of us might say this morning, I don't know what that means. But think back to the last time we said that Paul prayed to the Father of glory. And we said it meant a couple of things. First of all, it's about God's revelation. God's revelation of himself to sinners. And, and the other thing that we said in the context of Ephesians 1, that glory kept on being associated with God's gracious gifts. So it's about God disclosing himself in grace. But this particular phrase is very interesting. Riches of his glory. Because in Philippians 4.19, the Apostle Paul says, My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is that the riches of God's glory is secured, set apart for, and given because of Christ. This is not a throwaway line. The apostle is not just heaping up phrases here on thinking. No, he's doing it to... To amplify for us that what is being prayed for is something that God is ready, willing, and able to shower upon us by grace of the Lord Jesus. There's no end to what God's ready to give. And he says, with power is the next one. The thing that he would have us be strengthened with is power. God's power. Raw power. The means of the strengthening is by the Holy Spirit. He's the agent of the strengthening. Now here's the location. The inner man. The inner man. What's that about? And the answer is that's, that's the new part of you. In, in Romans 
the Apostle Paul, in that very difficult passage where he speaks about the trouble and the conflict of the Christian life being dragged into the humility of sin again and again. He says there in Romans 7, 22, that he delights in the law of God according to the inner man. That thing which has been made new. The regenerate heart. Paul speaks of it again in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Where he says that um, we don't lose heart because though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed. There's a progression going on here. It's being renewed day by day. So that tells us that we're speaking about grace, the new life of the soul given to us by Christ. That's where he would have us be strengthened in the inner part, in the new us. That which we're being made by grace. That brings us into verse 17 where we have some more qualifiers. And of course we come on to what we said already. Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is just another way of explaining what it means to be strengthened the inner man. Paul says, I'll tell you what that means in different language. It means that Christ would dwell in your heart. Christ would dwell in your heart. And the key thing about that word dwell which I want to come back to in a moment is it speaks of a home. The word dwell means to take up residence, to live in a place like it's a home. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is praying here as he, as he leads the church into praying for the things which please God, that Christ would live in your heart like it's a home. And then the rest of it's played in your hearts at the control center of the human person. And it's through faith. And how about the last phrase? I'm eager to get through some of this. It's fairly plain to us at this point. It's just elaboration and qualification upon one and the other. But look at the last one. Rooted and grounded in love. It's the fruit of it all. Love. This is not God's love for us or exclusively our love to God. This is about love as a Christian grace. This is about the love of our neighbor. And both of those words, they are pretty strong words when he says rooted and grounded. They're stabilizing terms. Rooted, firm, planted. Solid, grounded. It's not going anywhere. But guess what? It's in the soil of love that we become spiritually cemented in the Christian life. This is a vast prayer then as you think about it. As the Apostle Paul is praying for the church, he's saying, this is what I want you to pray for. I, I want you to be so strengthened in your inner man that Jesus Christ himself lives in your heart like it's a home so that the fruit of it will be obvious in your life. You will be cemented 
in love. Remember, I told you the reason for this prayer is that theology of chapter 2. Reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, living in the body of Christ together. That has to be worked out in practice. And here's how it happens. Being strengthened in the inner man. Christ dwelling in our hearts. This is a vast prayer request. And I'm going to bring it home by way of application and conclusion with a very simple question that has probably been nagging you. <laughs> Doesn't Christ already dwell in my heart? If I'm a believer, isn't Christ already dwelling in my heart? When the Spirit of God is sent forth into my heart, isn't it the case? Christ is already dwelling in us. And the answer is, well, of course, yes. Well, then why pray for it? Why would we pray for something that we already have? Why is the Apostle Paul so earnest and so eager to pray for what the Ephesians already have? And the answer is bound up in that word, dwell. You see, if I can borrow a crude analogy, maybe this will work. There's a difference between moving into your house and living in your house. There's a difference between moving into your house and living in your house. And there's nothing like the first night, right? There's nothing like finding the house of your dreams and you move into it the first night. I remember that happened for us uh, at one point. We got to our new house before the movers did. We had nothing besides the clothes on our back. And yet, instead of staying in a motel room that night, we went and we planted ourselves in the middle of the living room floor and we slept on the ground with nothing because we were so excited to be in our house. What a difference it made when the movers came and all of our stuff arrived. We began to take everything out of their boxes and to put them away. And at first, yes, it feels a little chaotic. There's boxes and stuff. But eventually, you take all that stuff and you put it away. You organize your house. You impose order upon your belongings. You throw fresh paint on the walls. You remodel the kitchen, you set up the backyard, you put pictures on the wall, and it's entirely different from when you moved in. There's a difference between moving in and living in. That's exactly what is meant in this word, Christ, to dwell. There is a difference between Jesus Christ dwelling in you from your regeneration forward and Christ dwelling in you. And you say, Pastor, are you sure you're not making too much of this word? And I say, no, I'm not. Because here's how Paul puts it in Galatians 4.19. My children, with whom I again labor until Christ is formed in you. 
That verb labor means a present tense ongoing activity. They're already Christians. They've already been justified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And yet the apostle says, I'm laboring in you until what Christ is formed. And the reason is because there's a difference between moving in and living in. This is one of the joys and great experiences of the Christian life. That you come to know Christ more thoroughly and more completely as you grow. One of the great blessings of being a believer over time is learning how to trust the Lord. Through trial and sorrow and difficulty and pain and joy and blessing and privilege, there is something that happens. You grow in the love of God. You grow in the knowledge of God. You grow in the sense and awareness through experience of Christ dwelling in you. So the apostle says, I won't stop laboring until you are being more and more formed in Christ. Paul essentially says the very same things to the Ephesians, one of the most well-taught churches of the apostolic era. You may know plenty about Jesus, but I pray that Christ would find residence in your heart. You see, he prays for it. And the reason he prays for it is because we need grace to experience it. For Christ to take up residence and to cause his influence to be expressed there more thoroughly and exhaustively and completely and palpably we have to change. We have sins that we have to put away. We have graces that we must adore. We have attitudes and appetites that need to be conformed to God's will. We need progressive renewal in the image of Christ. This is not a work that's in our hands. And that's precisely why the apostle prays. He doesn't just pray. He said, I get down on my knees and pray to the Father who's gracious, whose ear is open, whose heart is inclined to us because of Christ. And he pleads for this grace, strengthening in the inner man, Christ dwelling in their hearts more and more so that they would know the blessing which is for them through Christ. People of God, we can pray this prayer with understanding. We can pray this prayer with insight. And we can pray this prayer repeatedly and fervently because we know what it sets before us. A tremendous blessing. Think about it. Christ formed in you.
Christ making your heart. Not just something moved into, but a residence, a home, which he continues to fill with the grace of his presence as he sanctifies you more and more through and through so that we would come to know what the apostle says. It's not me who lives, but Christ who dwells in me. Fuel and energize yourself to pray this prayer, people of God, as you concentrate on the enormous blessing that's set before us here. Christ taking up residence in you. And as you pray that with confidence to the Father, with fervency on your knees, you can be persuaded this morning by God's grace, you'll obtain the blessing. Father, we thank you for this prayer of the Apostle. We thank you that you have made him a teacher to us, that we would learn how to pray and what we ought to pray for. Lord, give us wisdom and knowledge and insight as we think now upon the meaning and the substance of this prayer. May uh, you energize us to pray this for ourselves and for our neighbors, for our church. Because we can hardly imagine a greater blessing for us than to have Christ in the fullness of his grace living in our hearts. So, Father, give us diligence and determination to pray this, that we may know this great blessing and reward. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We... Uh,